Hi, I'm Tim. This is We're Only Human, a podcast celebrating the resiliency of the human spirit. We're here to learn where people find the strength to get back up after they get knocked down. Today, I'm joined by Sydney Williams. Sydney uh, is a wife, sister, daughter, former competitive skydiver, which I can't wait to talk about. Uh, also founder of Hiking My Feelings, a movement highlighting how spending time outside can help us heal our minds and bodies. Did I get that right? Like, is that the right elevator pitch for Hiking My Feelings? Yeah, I was actually, I was like, I don't know where this is going, but I'm into it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, because I love, um, I don't know where, I, I think I saw that on your, your website or something, but I love the notion of uh, founding a movement. Like it embodies so much more than just a specific website or a specific event or a specific person, but it's like beyond, you know, you and your husband. Yes. hundred percent. I've said that from the beginning. I was like, this is bigger than my story and it's bigger than hiking. So I view what we're doing as more of a movement that's, you know, a business second and a community first. I love that. So we, I was trying to figure this out. I, I've been trying to figure this out with everyone I'm talking to since um, at the beginning here. It's mostly people I, I know who have amazing stories I want to share. We met, I think, probably like 10 years ago, uh, which I know you're near my age. So I guess I can speak for both of us that apparently we're getting old. Um, <laughs> that, that, that we can say something happened 10 years ago. Right. Yeah. And we're not talking about like grade school. Right. <laughs> no. Yeah. But I think I think we, we ran in. I, I don't. I don't remember the exact like moment we met in person. Oh, I know. I know. You know? Uh-huh. When? So 2008, I got on Twitter. 2009, I was like, I know I'm moving to Chicago. I started tweeting about Chicago. John Morrison, remember John? He yeah. was, uh, we were tweeting back and forth. And then somehow I got introduced to you. And you, me, John, and um, oh God, what's that guy's name? Scott Bennett met at Shuba's when I came up to find an apartment for my first internship out of college. Oh my gosh. And now you guys I'm were my thinking... welcome wagon. <laughs> oh my gosh. I feel worse now because I, I still don't remember that. But uh, <laughs> it's, oh my gosh, Shuba. I know Shuba's. I'm trying to picture that. Okay. So so this was, this was years ago. Yeah. Um, and I bring it up because like, you know, you, you are someone who's active on social media, you're active, you know, in all sorts of, of communities. And it, you know, while we haven't necessarily spoken a lot over the past 10 years, it's was easy to kind of, you know, kind of share your story or, or be a part of, I guess, observe your story and your, your everything. Um, and so when I started thinking about this podcast a couple of weeks ago, um, you were someone that definitely kept coming up in my mind. Um, as I started to think about this concept of like people who, uh, you know, they might've gotten knocked down something, you know, life might've threw them a curveball, but they just like got right back up, figured it out, learned from it and kept going. You kept coming to mind because I started to think about, I started to think about all sorts of things. I, when I thought strength and resiliency is the theme, Sydney Williams, she, uh, and just a couple things I thought about, you had like, more than 15 friends die over a couple of years while you were a skydiver. I know you said you stopped counting at 15, so I don't even know what the grand total was. Um, you were diagnosed with diabetes a couple of years ago, which I, I want to talk about because I can't even imagine. Um, 
over the course of, of I believe, the past couple of years, and I want to talk to you a lot about this, you, I believe, you were distanced from your family a little bit. Was that is that accurate? I don't want to put words in your mouth. No, that's still true. Yeah. Distanced is a current term. <laughs> okay. And then the the fourth thing that, that came to mind, and honestly, I didn't obviously didn't know about it until you shared it publicly, but you in college were sexually assaulted and then you didn't actually uh, share that for a very long time with anyone. Um, and so in my mind, and, and these weren't the only four things, excuse me, running through my mind, but these are in my mind, very significant knockdowns, so to speak, right? Like this is things that I don't know how I would have gotten back up afterward. Um, I don't necessarily know what tools I would have used to do that. And therefore, you know, since I can't imagine myself doing it, I'm inspired and awe in awe by how you did it. Um, and so anyway, that that's kind of why, you know, I'm so happy to have you here today um, and kind of following this theme. But speaking of of your family and just family in general, I, I would love to understand um, you know, going way back, way more than 10 years. Uh, well, not way more. We're not that old. But um, <laughs> what was what was your childhood like? Like what was kind of, you know, what was young Sydney doing? What was young Sydney learning? What was that like? Oh, man. So young Sydney up until a point was wildly creative. And I think a lot of kids and now adults can relate to this. But I used to like make shows like we'd, you know, pretend and make plays. Um, I drew a lot. I journaled obsessively. Like that was one of the first things my dad did was like hand me a diary and be like, anything you ever need to process, write it down. (laughs) Um, And I grew up in a typical Midwestern household. I say typical in that I think that that alludes to a sense of closeness. Um, We were much more open with each other than a lot of my friends' families were. Like everybody growing up was like, wow, like, man. I, I wish I could tell my parents the kind of stuff that you can tell them and stuff like that. So um, I grew up, my parents, like my dad was my best friend. Um, my mom was, you know, the one that made the rules because dad was the cool guy. Um, and then I had my sisters two years younger than me. So in general, we hated each other like little sisters do, um, <laughs> you know, when you're younger. Siblings are basically the worst. Um, so, I mean, all in all, like I... Prior to this chapter of my life, I would have answered this being like, oh my God, we had the best time ever and I grew up in the best house. And I still I still say that that's true. But as we get older, as we understand that like life is hard and we're all just trying to figure it out and we realize that our parents are flawed humans just trying to figure it out, um, that has caused... I would say like a grand canyon between me and my once close family, um, just because I've chosen to articulate my struggles in a way that hopefully can help other people, which I don't know if it brings shame to them or if they've got their own stuff that they haven't dealt with and it's triggering. But um, the end all be all is like nowadays, we I haven't spoken to my dad or my sister since October of last year. And I haven't spoke to my mom since December of last year. So um, to go from being so close and so open. And my first call always, whenever something good, bad, or scary or wonderful or amazing happened was my parents. And I would like looking back now after this chapter, I can see that's kind of problematic. Um, But there's a level of nostalgia for what I thought I had growing up and what I think actually happened. Um, So yeah. So it's been, you know, at least almost a year that you haven't really spoken to them was 
Was there like a moment a year ago where just either side, you or your parents said like, you know what, I no longer want to speak to you? Or was it just like a natural thing where, you, you know, you had a conversation and then after that, no one really called each other back for what has now been a year? I established a very firm boundary. Um, so, ooh, backing up. So I, when I was a kid, um, like I said, I was wildly creative. I told stories. I, I like, I wasn't good at singing, but I liked singing. Um, <laughs> and I was told as a young kid, like, you know, it's easier to remember a truth than it is a lie. And also, P.S., you're a bad liar. Like, that's something I distinctly remember my dad telling me. He's like, one, your face has no filter. Two, neither do you. So, like, you're not good <laughs> at it. So just stop doing it, which is like parenting 101. I'm not a parent, nor do I have any desire to be. And I understand that, like, teaching your children not to lie is part of how to be a parent. Like, that's never been a question. Um, but I realized at 33 years old that what happened in that moment was when I was told that I was a bad liar and I shouldn't lie anymore, if my stories, which I was making up, like stories, unless you're like speaking your truth or articulating facts, stories are generally things that we make up. So I thought that I was a bad storyteller and that my stories were lies. So if I'm a bad liar, I should stop telling stories. And this was just me as a kid. I was like, oh, okay, well, if I'm bad at lying, then I'm probably really bad at this like creative stuff I'm trying to do. So I'll just stop doing that too. And so then I transitioned out of like a creative-ish lifestyle and then dove into like sports and activities because I figured if I'm not a creative person and if I'm bad at that, then maybe I could be good at cheerleading or gymnastics or the violin or the clarinet. Like I just jumped all over the place trying to find a thing. And when I was... In, I was on a trip with my dad and um, it was, you had alluded to earlier that I hadn't told anybody about my assault and that is true. Um, I was assaulted in college and I didn't tell anybody for 11 years. The first person I told was my husband. Um, after the assault, I didn't go to the police. I didn't go to the hospital. I didn't tell my parents. I didn't tell my friend whose house it happened at. I just went home, showered, looked at myself and I was like, we're taking this to the grave. Like girls like us don't get raped. And um, on a trip last year with my dad, after I had clearly, I've been talking about this publicly for a couple of years now, but, um, I was on a trip and I just felt like we were missing each other. Like we were kind of talking in circles and I felt like he was treating me like his drunk 16 year old daughter who like came home after a party and fell down the stairs kind of thing versus a 33 year old woman who's been supporting herself since she moved out of the house. Um, so I was like, hey, dad, like, I think it'd be really cool if we could just like redefine our relationship dynamic. I've done a lot of work since I've moved out of the house. I'd love to introduce you to the woman I am today because I feel like you still see me as your little girl and I will always be that. I'll always respect you as my father. And also I'm not that woman anymore. <laughs> so um, we had a big conversation. I told him about how on the flight from San Diego to Orlando, I wrote about my assault for the first time. My dad's also a writer. He's a photojournalist and a, um, he, spe he specializes in writing about um, the cruise industry. And he's kind of where I got that skill from, I would say. And I thought that that was a good opening point to connect on. Like, oh my gosh, this is a thing I went through. You're the one that taught me how to process via writing. I'm going to tell you how what you showed me how to do has now helped me. Like, a connection point. And what I was met with instead was him telling me that my story is bullshit and that I better come up with a new one because nobody's buying the one I'm telling. 
you coming to him like that and like that was such vulnerability and such strength to come to him and be like, hey, I want you to know who I am now. I feel like there's a disconnect. I mean, how how did you find the strength to do that? that that's like, oh man, if you're if you're at the moment where like, you know, you used to dad was your best friend back in the day. Clearly there's something off today right. and you don't feel like maybe you're both the same people anymore. How do you even approach him like that? I'm just really like inspired by that. And I'm just curious how you like even found the strength to do that. Well, I have to give credit where credit is due. Um, one of my mentors, Aaron Strout has been, I call him one of my, like the chairman of my personal board of directors, as it were. Um, he started as a professional mentor and his transition into a bit of a life mentor as well. But um, when I was on this trip with my dad and we were like not talking for the first couple of days we were on the um, ship, I sent Aaron a note and I was like, I, I can't, like we are talking in circles around each other. Like we're not making sense. And he's like, listen, if you guys can't communicate verbally, write him a note, like send him an email, at least write down like what you're feeling and what you're trying to tell him. And then see if you can communicate that way because you guys both communicate via writing. Maybe this is the way to go. And so I sat out on the balcony of this cruise ship, like as we're going from uh, someplace to Norway. And I was like, just dumping my heart on this page. And I didn't send it. But that email that I wrote ended up being the script for this conversation, because I felt like in that moment, it would be better received. I felt like we had gotten to a place and I could articulate what I was feeling in a concise and easy to understand kind of way that I could, I felt as though I could communicate this verbally and I, that I didn't need to send the letter. So the letter ended up being the script for the conversation that we had. But I don't think I would have gotten to that place or come up with those tools if A, I didn't have somebody that could be an impartial person that could like tell me how to work through this. And B, if I didn't feel like I could ask for help too, like to have somebody in that position in my life where I could be like, Hey, I need you. Can you help me? And then to also be at the point where I could ask for that help, like everything, all the work that I had done personally, professionally, emotionally, spiritually, whatever, like it, in that moment, it all clicked. And I was like, Oh, I need to ask for help. I've got a person in place to do so. And I trust that they'll tell me that what they're doing, what they tell me to do will actually help me. So, um, it was kind of just the perfect storm of trust and vulnerability. Like you said. So you write you write it all down then, and then you approach him for a conversation, and then the result of that is he suggests that this, the path you're on and the stories you're telling are probably not what you should be doing. Yeah. And so in that moment, I was like, okay, um, clearly we've missed the mark again. <laughs> and we're in a cruise cabin, so this is a pressure cooker situation. This is not like some open place where I can go somewhere else. I mean, like I could go somewhere else on the ship, but like we're in the middle of the damn ocean, you know, like there's not really any getting out of this. Like it was, it needed to happen and I'm glad it did. Um, so after he said that, I was like, okay, clearly we need to push pause on this conversation because this is now getting heated. And frankly, what you just said to me is emotionally very violent. Um, cause I just opened up about the most violent thing that can happen to the human body short of being murdered, I believe is sexual assault. Um, and for him to respond in that way, not even respond, that was a reaction. There was no, there was no pause. There was no thinking. It was just like the words came out of my mouth. And the second he could interject with what he said, he did. Um, but in that moment, the reason that that, that part of the story is so pivotal for me is when I was little, I assumed that my stories were bullshit because my dad told me that I was a bad liar. And then at 33 years old, sitting across from him, having just spared my entire soul to my father, 
um, I, my young me was confirmed because the words that came out of his mouth were literally your story is bullshit. And I was like, Oh, so like pat on the back, little me knew that I couldn't tell my parents about the assault because this is what would have happened. And if that had happened when I was assaulted, like if I had gone home and been like, Hey, this happened to me. If he had said that, then I honestly don't know if I'd still be on this planet because my, at that point in time, my dad was the authority on he was my moral compass. Like I tailored my behavior to get good reactions out of my father. Cause I wanted him to love me. And I wanted, like, I wanted to be the best daughter and I was the firstborn. So there was like this air of personal responsibility that I took upon myself to be the best daughter. So in that moment, when he told me my story was bullshit, I was like, Oh, okay. Like young me knew that this was not a safe space to talk about this. And that was the beginning. Like there's been a lot of little puzzle pieces that get put in place along the way. But that was a big one. And that unlocked a really big opportunity for me to heal and look at the way that I was raised and the relationship that I had with my folks from a 30,000 foot view instead of like, I'm in it right now, and start to evaluate and not make judgments on how they parented me, but start to evaluate it now as an adult who knows what she knows. And now that I have all this context for what had happened to me and why some of my behavior following the assault was so uncharacteristic of the little bright, shiny light Sydney that they knew. Now that I knew all of that, then I could go back and I could forgive myself for some of the things that I had been through, for some of the things that they had said to me and, and just not knowing what I was going through. Because when I didn't tell them, but I was lashing out because I was in a state of unresolved trauma, they were perplexed. They're like, what happened to our girl? Like, who's this chick? Like making all these weird, bad decisions. Who's this girl that's failing school? Like, some of the stuff that happened after the assault was so uncharacteristic of my former self that this was a real opportunity to look at that and and come to a place where, okay, what of the things that I believe are actually my beliefs? How much of this did I absorb from my parents? And is this how I actually want to show up in the world? Because I realized that so much of the reactions and responses and decisions I had made were rooted in this trauma that never got solved. And now I was in this position to like just basically burn everything down and recreate the life that I actually wanted to live and become the woman that I've always known I could be. If, if your mom and dad, um, and obviously I don't know your mom and dad, so this is all hypothetical and I'm not judging anything, but if your mom and dad don't, you know, approach you, let's say over the next two or three years, you know, to kind of reconcile, do you think you will ever be the one to approach them again? Or is this just something where like, it's going to have to, you know, resolve itself over time? That's a great question. It's something that I think about from time to time, because every once in a while, like in a while, like the way that the way that the boundary was established, I'll tell that story real quickly, and then I can answer that question. So after I started doing this talk and um, this was my, my first stop on my speaking tour last year. Um, I read this list because uh, I, I did two, like, man, this is kind of jumbled, but so I did two hikes. <laughs> the speaking tour is about like how hiking helped me heal my mind and body. Um, and there's this list that I read <clears throat> of all of these like internalized beliefs and um, just things that I had heard over the course of my life that turned into this like negative soundtrack, my inner critic who just at any point when I think that I'm on the right path, like my ego wants to like step in and shut it down. Um, Cause I'm so used to being in struggle. Uh, when I realized that, um, that this was turning into a growth opportunity, I started talking about it because I was like, this is something that could help people. So 
on this big list of things on my talk, there's like, it's a little index card and I read it. And so there's this, the, the, the last line is the line that my dad said to me, which is your story is bullshit. You better come up with a new one because nobody's buying the one you're telling. Between the second to the last line on that list and the last one on my first talk, I was just like, it took me probably 30 seconds to get the courage together to have those words cross my lips again, because saying it in front of everybody else felt very vulnerable in that if I even suggest like my father did, that my story is bullshit. Are these people even going to believe me? Or are they going to side with my dad? Like I, I was still in such a state of trauma that I, I had to like really like recenter myself, replant my feet, take a deep breath, stand like firmly in my stance before I could get those words out. So after that talk, um, that first one, I had a friend from the agency I used to work at come and record it and take pictures so I could just have a reference for like my first talk ever. Um, and so I was looking through the pictures and there's this one picture where I'm making this face where it looks like I've just had a massive realization. And the massive realization I had was just that, that when I was little, they told me I was a bad liar. When I was on that cruise ship, my dad told me that my stories were bullshit and I connected those dots. So I wrote about this post in this moment and my sister sends me a message and she's like, Hey, could you uh, pull that down and or block all of dad's professional contacts? Because I'm afraid that if he sees that and reads it, that he'll kill himself. And if he did that, and I didn't warn you, I couldn't live with that blood on my hands, essentially suggesting that if my dad did kill himself, that it would be my fault because of something that I wrote about my life. And I was just like, okay, pump the brakes. Like that's not acceptable. Like that's actually a pretty manipulative thing to say to somebody, especially your sister. Um, and so I kind of paused there and then my mom responded because this is in our family group chat. And my mom said something along the lines like, is it possible that you're changing your story now because people are actually listening to you? Indicating that perhaps I'm fabricating some of this because I have a platform that I'm trying to build or something. And then... What did, what did she mean by changing your story? Like, well, did, was she referencing a, a previous version of her story that she knew of you and now she see, feels like it's different? What would she mean by that? You know, to be honest with you, I'm not entirely sure. My sister said that I have a very interesting recollection of my childhood, indicating that what she remembers is not what I remember, which is understandable because people have different perceptions which form their reality. Um, and the thing that like really drove this point home, like my mom has said what she said, but then my dad said, he's like, hi, um, I was there for your childhood. This, none of this happened. And also as close as I'll get to the conversation we had on that trip, I recorded that conversation. You can move along. So the conversation that I had with my father on that trip where I'm telling him who I am now and introducing him to the woman that I've become and sharing my deepest, darkest, craziest stories with him, um, he recorded that conversation without my consent or knowledge. So, and the, and the reaction that I had to that was, okay, clearly like people are missing the boat because my sister thinks my dad's going to kill himself if he reads it. She also thinks that I'm making up my childhood. My mom thinks that I'm like fabricating my story to sound like it. Now I want people to listen to me. And then my dad is saying that I'm doing this because public speaking is a very competitive arena and that I'm like making the details a little bit more than they actually were and that none of that happened. And I was like, I don't think you guys understand oh, what's happening here because this is why I didn't feel safe coming to you to begin with because now it's like the inquisition of a lifetime dissecting what I've experienced and 
the most violent thing that's ever happened to me. And now I'm being questioned as to whether or not any of this is true. Like, this is why I didn't tell anybody to begin with, because I knew that this would happen. So my first response was, okay, well, I'll get to dad and mom or Whitney and mom later. As far as my dad goes, I was like, if you think that I'm misrepresenting this conversation, please send me your recording. I'll listen to it. And if the words are wrong, if I'm misremembering this, please send it and I will adjust the language accordingly. But I don't think that's what's happening here. And I was like, either you're saying that you recorded this and you're using that to hurt me or you're lying about recording it and using that to hurt me. And in either case, none of these things are acceptable. And I was talking with my husband because I was like, I mean, I'm coming from dad's my best friend to now my entire family thinks that I'm full of shit. Um, this is a, like a polar 180 that seemingly came out of nowhere. And I realized I was like, oh my God, like if my husband talked to me this way, if any of my friends talked to me this way, I would have walked in a heartbeat. Like I would not be even remotely close to okay with this behavior. But because it's my family, like that's okay. And that's, that's not true either. Like I, Barry was like, hang it up. Like if you want to be treated like that, go for it. And I'm not going to judge you for staying in this relationship because you need to come to these realizations on your own. He's like, I don't have an opinion here, but think about what would happen if I said that to you. And I was like, right. They'd tell me to kick your ass to the curb, you know? Does it make it that much harder though? Because it is your family. I mean, like, so everything I understand from what you told me is you are a very close knit family. I mean, you obviously admired your dad. Um, you know, your sister and you were probably close, um, or I mean, it sounds like you were close. I mean, so you, you know, you, you lead a life of, or you're, you're participating in a life of a family that's pretty close. And then you reach a point where, you know, your life during that time changed, they didn't know about it. And you're now ready to kind of open up about that. They maybe aren't ready. I don't know. Yeah. But the fact that you were so close to your family and now they've, you know, they've stepped back and said, we're not ready for this. And you know, you're going full steam, like we're going to have to step aside here. I can understand. Trust me, I can understand. I've had, you know, my own problems with my family over time, but about wanting to push them aside. But I, I can't help but ask about the other side of the equation of, you know, did you also feel like I need to get them back? Like I, I remember the unit we have here, the love we have here, like I need you here. Um, or is it just maybe you you tried that as best you could? They said no, and you the only other option is to push them away. Um, I don't think of it as pushing away. First of all, I think it's uh, establishing boundaries with family is incredibly difficult for all the reasons you just alluded to. Like especially when you come from a close knit family and you grow up thinking that this is what everything's like. Like I I wouldn't say that my childhood was problematic, but going back and thinking about the things that I've survived as an adult and how I've responded to those understanding and separating, like what of this was a learned response from how I was raised and what of this was a trauma response when I didn't get help and trying to bridge the gap between those two, because in order to have understanding for why I need to establish a boundary with my family, I need to first understand myself and who I want to be. And if they're not here for that, and if they can't, they, I, I'm not even saying they need to like it, but for the first response to me being the happiest, the healthiest, the most embodied I've ever been, especially since the assault, but especially since I was a kid, like I I feel as though I grew up and I did exactly what they told me to do, which was you can be anything you want, go do that, and if you make the world a better place in the in the in the meantime, even better. 
Like that's what I'm doing now. And to know that they don't want to be a part of it, that's the part that sucks because I've grew up with a household where mom had the steady job. Dad worked nights. Dad did whatever he had to do to make sure that somebody was home with us. And from that, I learned like, if it's not working, try something new. Like you don't have to stay in one thing the whole time. You can go seek out the thing that brings you joy and even better if you get paid for it. So like I've followed this like inspiration station, which is we can all be the best versions of ourselves. We can all be whatever we want. And I truly believe that. And then I go do that. And as a result of doing that, I'm the happiest and healthiest I've ever been. And then, then what? Like I get left in the dust like this. Like I'm the one that established the boundary, but the response to me showing up as my true authentic self was violent emotionally, spiritually, not physically. Cause I'm on the other side of the country, but I mean, I mourned my family as if they all died in a car crash after this boundary was established because it was such a departure from the relationship that I thought I had with them. And I alluded to that at the beginning was like in the establishment of the boundary, I was able to understand parts of myself and parts of my life that I wasn't able to understand when I ran to mom and dad to tell them everything first. Like in the absence of having that and being like, okay, hi, I just experienced a thing instead of like sitting with the feeling, understanding what the feeling is, understanding where I felt it before. Instead of doing that, I would always just go run to mom and dad and be like, fix me or listen to me or give me attention or whatever. Like in the absence of having that safety blanket, I really had to learn how to feel my feelings and process my emotions and understand how I process too, because a lot of my processing was quick prior to healing from this trauma. And now looking back, I can think about how I want to show up in the face of something that triggers me. So it's, I I don't like saying push away because I don't think that boundaries are pushing anybody away. Being on the receiving end of a boundary can feel like you're being pushed away, but ultimately the boundary is the ultimate form of love for myself and for my family. And the door has always been open to answer your original question a few questions back. Like, do I think that this is something that I will bring up if they don't come to me in however many years? No, because while my words were strong when I established the boundary, they were also very clear, which after communicating with me for however much of my life where I feel like I'm performing a role and I feel like I'm jumping into this thing where I need to say the right things in order for you to hear me, to hear my true authentic voice, which isn't sugarcoated, which is very clear and isn't putting your feelings first, it's putting my safety first, that language feels harsh. But the message was always and has always been and the entire theme around this boundary is, I need to go heal. And I can't do that in your presence, not with this kind of inquisition. And also, clearly, there's some stuff that you guys need to heal as well. Because the first response to I was raped should not be that my story is bullshit. So I don't know what happened to everybody else in my family. But I need them to heal their stuff before they can come at me because I've been carrying their projections and their insecurities and their expectations in this backpack that I've been walking around through life with since I was born. And I'm, not, I'm done carrying stuff for other people. If you can't heal yourself, it's not my job, nor is it my responsibility to heal for you. So I wouldn't call a boundary at pushing anybody away. It is the ultimate form of love in this case. Oh, I love how you phrase that. And I love that you've explained this to me because, you know, now I feel terrible actually for suggesting that you push them away, but I, and I, I'm taking notes here and I just keep drawing arrows toward this phrase, establishing boundaries with family, 
because I've never thought about it that way, to be completely honest. And now I look back and I think I've established boundaries with my family in the past and um, I never realized that's what it was. And I think that's such a healthy way of looking at it. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And don't feel bad because we're like, we are taught, like that's one of the core foundations of being in a family is like, I don't know any family that hasn't said, you know, family comes first. Like we always have each other, stuff like that. Like when that is so ingrained in what you believe and how you were raised and when you actually feel that you have that support, to have that support removed feels like a rug has been ripped out from underneath you. And for me, like I said, I mourned my family as if they had all died in a car crash or something because it was so drastic. And it went from the first people I call is always my parents to now like the first couple times, because this was this has been a very exciting chapter of my life, as I'm sure you've kind of been tracking. Um, when I got the speaking tour booked, I wanted to call my folks. When I book, when we bought the van, I wanted to call my folks. When I wrote my book, I wanted to call my folks. Like I didn't though, because I have to uphold my edge of the boundary, and my edge of the boundary is I'm doing my healing, and the door is open when you've done yours. So like, if for some reason they find this and they're listening, like. I don't care what you thought you read in the email, the true form and the like basis foundation, excuse me, of everything that I've ever done since this has been holding space for that healing because clearly they were unable to heal in the face of me speaking about my trauma and the way that I'm talking about it. I firmly believe that trauma is generational And I also believe that if trauma can be passed down generation to generation, so can healing. And the cycle of trauma stops with me. Now, I'm not going to go have kids and perpetuate the healing biologically. But what I'm doing in the community that we're building and the movement that we're leading is creating the space for people to talk about this kind of stuff. Because the stuff we've survived is what connects us. And I don't want to like stay in the struggle and be like connected to people via trauma bonds. But recognizing what we've survived and articulating it clearly and reclaiming those parts of ourselves and our stories is ultimately what's going to have have to happen for this world to change at all. Like we talk about the ripple effect. The second that I started doing this work, my family thought I was selfish. They thought I was losing my mind. Like I had to establish a boundary so I could be selfish with my time, with my healing, with what I needed. Because for so long, for my entire life, I had put their needs and their emotions and their wants first. And I reacted and respond and performed a role of Sydney Owen to appease all of that. Sydney Williams, like I, as a raging feminist, like a lot of people were surprised that I took Barry's last name, but like, I honestly looked at marriage as like a break in my identity. Like I can go grow into whoever Sydney Williams wants to be. And I'm not attached to who Sydney Owen was. And that was the separation for me. It's like, I can go and be this person that I know I've always wanted to be, but for whatever reason, I've always felt like I had to dull my shine. I had to tone it down because since I can remember, I've always been air quotes too much. And now I'm in a place spiritually, emotionally, physically, where I don't give a shit if people think I'm too much. If it's too bright, put your sunglasses on or turn away. Cause like, this is who I am. And this is all you get. Like, there's nothing else here. I am a wide open book and there's no ulterior motives. There's nothing to read between the lines. Like what I'm saying is my truth. And that's all I give a shit about for the rest of my life is just showing up as authentically as I possibly can and not worrying about whether or not my truth is going to make somebody think poorly of me. Because frankly, I can't control what people think of me, and I never could. And I spent a long time thinking that I could, and I'm just done with that mess. 
I, I love that you, you said just a little bit ago, you said this is you know an exciting chapter of your life. And what I love about that is because this chapter of your life is based on, you know, some of the things we're talking about here, but you've you've decided this is this is exciting. This is a good thing. Like you said, I am who I am. I'm gonna share my story. Um in, in speaking chapter of your life, I do want to go back to your your skydiving days. Um, so we're, we're talking probably five, six years ago, right? Yeah. Um, I saw a blog post on your blog from June of 2015. So about four years ago. And I want to read this, this part of it. Um, the week before Adam's memorial, Jim died. Minutes after we released Adam's ashes into the sky, we got word about Graham. Six days after Adam's memorial, Tom died. And then in all caps, how am I still breathing? Is this real life? When do I wake up from this shit show? What was that about? Oh, man. Thank you for reading my words back to me because I was like, oh, I'm like in this moment where I'm writing this. Hang on, need a breath. <laughs> um, so you mentioned in the beginning and I used to say more than 15 of my friends died. And then I realized I was like, I'm not doing any of my friends that died a service by capping it at 15. So I went through and I made a list and I counted how many of my friends did die because I stopped counting at 15. Um, so 23 of my friends died between 2010 and 2014 in the years that I was skydiving. Um, there's a couple more that have been added to that list since um, that weren't from that particular chapter. But in that condensed period of time, 23 of my friends died. And I'm not saying like somebody because I worked at one of the biggest drop zones in the world. So I'm not saying like somebody who came and made a jump once is my friend. I mean, like I've had a beer with this person. I've shared a meal with this person. I've jumped with this person or in some way, shape or form, they have directly impacted my life more than somebody like coming by for a high five. So in that moment in 2015, I was just like, what am I like, what is my life and how do I get through this? Cause at that point I had stopped jumping. I stopped jumping at the end of 2014, but I leapt into starting my own skydiving events company because I had some unfinished business with the industry um, I wanted to prove that I could do what I had been doing at this big drop zone by myself because I was heavily critiqued for how I came and like bounced into this industry. Like I came with all of my corporate know-how from fancy agencies in Chicago and Austin and then returned, like came into the skydiving industry, like ready to bring big brand power to an industry that's 10 or 15 years behind in everything socially, technology wise. Uh, politically, economically, like this whole sport is like a time machine. And so I got a lot of critiques for that. And in that moment, when I left, I was like, I just want to know that I can do what I've done by myself without the biggest drop zone in the world behind me. Like that, I, I want to know that I can do this as Sydney Williams, not Sydney from this particular business. And so Adam's Memorial was the last event that I did for that. And that was one of like those two weeks were just insane. Like at the, the, my friend Tom that died, um, his wife at the time was one of my closest friends and him and, uh, Tom and Tracy were both my mentors in the sport of skydiving. They were the reason that I wanted to compete, um, because they were competitors and to have one of your mentors just remove themselves from this planet. And it wasn't intentional. Like he died on a skydiving accident, but it's just like, Adam had died. We just released his ashes and then all these other people. And I was just like, 
I, I can't even see which way is up. And so Adams Memorial was the last event that I hosted in skydiving. And then a few months later after that, my husband was fired. So I don't know what the date was on that blog post, but like all of Adam's stuff, like the memorial, losing Tom, losing Graham, that was all in May. And then at the end of July, my husband lost his job. He was a professional skydiver for 16 years. Um, and then after that, Barry and I were like professional drinkers and we were really good at it. I drank a bottle of wine to myself every night. I ate Ben and Jerry's for breakfast. Um, and that's how I coped because I didn't know what to do. Like I was just so distraught. I mean, I, I had walked away from all of my sponsorships as a, as a skydiver. I walked away from my dream job, which was doing events PR and marketing at this big drop zone. And I stopped, I like retired from the sport altogether. Um, because my coach who was the entire reason that I left Chicago to move to Southern California was so I could train at his facility. I found out that he had been, um, arrested on six felony counts of raping a 14 year old girl. And I knew how sexual assault plays out in the media. And in that moment, I was like, if there is any chance that this is going to reflect on the business, I will not be the person that cleans up his personal life. Like that is not in my job description. So at the end of 2014, I left everything. And then 2015, I was like, I, I'm going to try this. And I did like three events. Then we did Adam's Memorial. And then I was like, and now I'm all the way done with skydiving. Like I am good to go. And at the end of 2015, I went back to the agency that I was working with um, before I left corporate America to skydive full time to get in the first place. So, so that blog post was from June, 2015. And from what I understand, 2014, I mean, led up to that, um, you know, you mentioned 23 friends between 2010 and 2014, but 2014, um, your uncle, I believe died of, of brain cancer. Yeah. The 2014 sucked. Uh, the beginning of the year, my friend, Chris, who was a, uh, intelligence officer for the U S army, he was a veteran. Um, he committed suicide in January, which as I'm sure you're well aware with veterans day coming up, um, on average, 22 veterans every day in this country take their own life. Um, so that's how 2014 started. And then later that year, my uncle Mike, um, who had previously beaten brain cancer, had the tumors come back and take his life. Um, at the time I was competing with my skydiving team, we were planning to go to the national skydiving competition in Chicago that year. And my teammate, like skydiving felt like it was the only thing that was working out for me besides my marriage. Like my marriage was always awesome. Skydiving was great. Um, but after my uncle died, my teammate, one of my teammates injured herself and we thought that we were done for the season. So now skydiving has been ripped out from underneath me as well. And then Adam died in August. And then when I got back from Adam's funeral, um, or when we were making Adam's memorial plans, uh, the teammate that was injured was like, oh, hey, I'm better. <laughs> and so then I had to choose between going to my friend's funeral or going to the national skydiving competition because I only had enough money to do one. I couldn't do both because both were happening in Chicago, but they were happening about a month apart. So I chose to go to Adam's funeral instead of going to nationals. And then when I got back from Adam's funeral, um, I jumped right into planning the biggest event of the year at the drop zone that I was working at. And it was the best event they've ever had on the drop zone ever. And I found out after the event that one, my boss had been arrested on six felony counts of um, sexually assaulting a 14 year old girl. And also he had offered my job to somebody that I hired to work that event that we had just completed. So he had told them, like he pulled this woman aside during the biggest event that they've ever had on this drop zone, which I coordinated. And he said, Sydney is no longer serving her purpose here. Would you like her job? So Um, 2014 was absolutely the worst. And so when I found out about my boss and um, the young girl and everything, I was like, okay, now I'm done. So 
I quit. And yeah, 2014 was probably one of the hardest years of my life. It just felt like, I mean, that whole entire time period just felt like I was a boxer, you know, with their hands tied behind their back, no self-defense. Like I couldn't even put my own hands up to like try to defend myself. It was just like life just kept socking me in the face and getting really good body shots. Like I was just getting beat up by the world. And, um, I did what I had to do to survive. And for me, that was ice cream and wine. And I wouldn't recommend that path, but, um, ultimately what did you do after that though like like the ice cream and wine and i'm glad you're being so honest about this 2014 sounds like i i wrote down in my preparation for this a tumultuous year uh but i like you know a hellish year is probably much more realistic um ice cream wine you know you and barry together are probably trying to support each other but that's a lot to handle and process you know what did you were you able to seek any professional help afterward or did you and Barry get each other through this? Like what did you do after the ice cream and wine phase? So ice cream and wine was a theme that continued through to my diabetes diagnosis in 2017. So um, to answer your other questions, I've never had professional therapy because when I had access to it, I was scared to get a therapist because I thought that meant I was broken and I didn't fancy myself a broken woman. I've got my shit together. Um, And I didn't want to break down that facade And when I didn't have, like, when I had access to it, I was scared to get it. And then I just didn't have health insurance for a while. So I didn't have access to it. Um, So for me, the healing came in the form of reading a lot of books. Um, I went like, all the way in upside down and backwards and like nearly drowned myself in personal growth courses in 2015. Um, So I, uh, I signed up for like a women's entrepreneurship course and I went to a couple of retreats and I just consumed all the things about like personal growth and self-development and stuff like that. And I was just like, just desperate for anybody else that had the answers. Cause I couldn't trust myself to answer my own questions. So I was just seeking validation of my experience from anybody that would give it to me and seeking ways to heal from any possible avenue. Um, so for me, it was a lot of book reading, a lot of self-reflection, um, the way that I've healed from the drinking and ice cream phase of stuff was actually, um, through hiking and backpacking and staying, um, spending time outdoors because I realized, um, when I went back to corporate, um, I, now I had lots of money so I could get like lots of good wine and I could get it delivered to my house. So like, uh, I didn't really have to work real hard to, to have all the things that I wanted for my coping mechanisms. Um, and so the stress of, uh, going back to agency life, um, the stress of not dealing with anything uh, ever, um, eventually came to a head. And in 2017, I finally told someone about my assault and that was Barry. And that was 11 years after the assault happened. Um, And in that moment, I just kind of committed to growth um, and knew that I needed to process what I needed to process. And so I I credit hiking with a lot of my healing um, and the talk that I give on tour and the story that is shared in my book is starts with 2014 and the worst year of my life and then phases into like leaving skydiving joining corporate America again. And, you know, now I'm adulting with a capital A, right? Like I'm not jumping out of planes anymore. So mom and dad are pretty pumped about that. Um, I've got my fat salary back, cushy benefits. And one of the benefits of working at that agency was being able to have the entire week off between Christmas and New Year's. Like 
if anybody listening is fortunate enough to have a job with paid time off, especially if you work in client services, you know, you still check your email, like (laughs) you're making sure the world's not burning down (laughs) without you. And one of the perks of this agency was like, that wasn't even going to be a thing. So knowing that I could be completely disconnected, I was like, we had been doing some day hikes here and there. Um, We had gone camping at Joshua Tree a couple of times, but my husband grew up in New Hampshire and he was like, Hey, you know, we should go spend some time outside. We should make, would you like to try a backpacking trip? And I was like, yeah, I think that sounds awesome. So um, I essentially rolled off the couch and onto the trail with no preparation. I, in the, in the years between when I was competing in skydiving and my first hike in 2016, I gained probably 50 pounds. Um, At my heaviest, I was probably pushing 200, maybe 210. Um, on a five, four frame on a good day when I'm standing tall. Um, so I, I wasn't caring for myself at all. And I, I thought I could go walk across an Island and I, I got most of the way across, but it was the hardest thing I've ever done physically, but outside in the back country with no distractions, I was able to start processing some of this stuff that had happened to me. Um, because I'm, I'm a professional avoider of feelings or I used to be now I don't. Um, but between, I think I think we all oh, are, don't you? I would agree. Like, I really do think we all <laughs> yeah. are. We make it very easy. Um, just between like TV and music and apps and caring for everybody else before we care for ourselves, like we are experts at avoiding the feelings that we feel. Um, and you have to actually feel them to work through them. And I was such a good avoider. Um, but the first trip was like. It was the hardest thing I've ever done physically, but I learned like, even though I don't recognize the body I'm in because I haven't been treating myself well and I haven't been caring for myself, um, I love this body. Like this body just took me all the way across this island. Um, I don't recognize it, but this this feels good. Like I, I'm taking steps to manage my health now. So that was December, 2016. And then in 2017, in September, I was diagnosed with diabetes. And that's that was like the big catalyst for change. That's where everything started to shift in this way of like, I need to evaluate all of my choices because with type two diabetes, there's such a stigma around it because it is largely attributed to lifestyle and diet um, and exercise and, or the lack thereof as it were. And it was serious enough for me to take a look at my life and be like, wow. um, Okay. I, I, I really need to make some changes here, but not so serious as to completely derail my life. Like if I, if I got like, breast cancer or something like that would have been a completely different life path, I think, than diabetes, which is like, I'm not going to die right now, but I do need to get this under control. And, and I think that's a fair comparison. I, you know, cancer, I agree, it would have been a totally different track. But let's be clear here. We just talked about how 2014 was absolute hell. 2015 wasn't much better. 2016, you're on a path to normality in your life, I guess. You're feeling better. Now 2017 shows up and you have a disease. I mean, diabetes is considered a disease, right? Oh yeah, it's a chronic illness. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, Sydney, in all seriousness, how the hell do you get back up after this one now? Well, so this one, great question. Um, so the I really truly believe that skydiving is what set me up to manage this disease well. Because when I was competing, um, when we would get down from a training jump, we would debrief the jump, like what, what happened? And, you know, we'd watch the video. And before I learned how to do this in a proactive way, I would get down, I would blame myself for everything that went wrong. Right. And I'd be like, Oh, guys, I'm so sorry. That was all me. I screwed everything up. If I wasn't on that skydive, you guys would have nailed it. Right. 
And then my coach was like, okay, that's actually not true. And also, here's how we're going to do this from now on, because I see what you're doing here. You jump straight into blaming yourself. And that's not a productive way to get through a training session. So here's what we're going to do. When we get down from a skydive, we're going to say three things that we thought went well. And then we're going to follow that with three things we think we can improve and how we can improve them. Now, are there always three things that go well on a skydive? No. Sometimes the three things that went well were I didn't die. I kept breathing and my parachute opened and like, and that's good, but you've got to start with a positive. You cannot just jump into berating yourself. And I was like, okay, cool. And then the three things to improve and how it was the, and how part that I think set me up for success with diabetes, because even if you don't know how to fix something, the fact that you're even thinking about what can be fixed and you're seeking a way to fix it, that step of critical thinking and viewing it in that way totally transforms the way that you see problems or failures or struggles or challenges. Cause it's not like, it's not like I suck their shame end of scene. It's like, okay, that didn't go well. Why? And how do I fix it for next time? Cause like that is a skill that either I learned and forgot or just never learned in the process of growing up. And so to be able to look at what I would have assumed to be a catastrophic failure at any point in time, all the time, always, I was like, oh no, these are actually just like little tweaks that I can make in this particular case around skydiving. And that ended up being like this formula for how I manage my diabetes because I learned that one, I'm going to like, while I fancy myself creative these days, cause I've tapped back into that first and foremost, I'm an analytical mofo. Like I, I will overanalyze everything and I love data. And so when I learned that there's four factors that affect your blood sugar, when I was diagnosed, I was like, okay, this little quadrant is going to be my data set. Like this is how I manage this disease. So the four factors that affect your blood sugar are the food you eat, how you move your body, the medicines you take and your stress. I also had the opportunity to channel my people pleasing tendencies into being the best diabetes patient my doctor has ever seen. So now everything, (laughs) everything that's always been problematic, like my desire to be, you know, the best daughter and the first and everything and wanting everybody to like me and to do well and to perform well by them. Now I have this like way to funnel this into my health, which is a very different way of approaching wellness than what I've been doing in the past, which was like, I need to lose weight for this event. Like if I don't lose 30 pounds by South by Southwest, then everybody who sees me is going to know I'm a cow. Like that was how I measured my life and how I approached opportunities in the past was like, am I thin enough to do this? Am I pretty enough to do this? Am I smart enough to do this? And in this case, I was like, no, I've got, I've got this. Like I am smart and I can figure this out. And also I'm going to approach this from a place of this is my set for success. So every morning when I check my blood sugar, if it was high, I would like go through that quadrant and be like, okay, well, what did I eat yesterday? Okay. I ate really well. Perfect. Okay. Did I move my body? Yeah. I walk every morning. All right. Great. Did I take my medications on time? Yep. Sure did. Okay. So it's that last bucket, which was my stress. And that's one of the biggest drivers for me at the time was like, it's hard enough to make lifestyle changes, but like in the spirit of, I want to get this shit under control as fast as possible it's entirely doable because now I have a reason and it's not vanity. I'm not trying to get thin for some events. I'm not like trying to fit into a smaller dress size. I'm just trying to get my life back on track, which is a very different angle of attack. So it wasn't ever like, Oh, I never felt deprived when I changed my nutrition plan. And even just in the way I talk about diabetes management, like I never called it a diet. I never said that I was restricting. 
I was on a diabetes nutrition plan because what I was doing was nourishing my body via food instead of depriving it of all the things that made it what it was to begin with. Like even just shifting the language and the mindset around what I was doing was what set me up for success with that. And so like diabetes was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. And I say that to this day, every year in November, I reflect on what I'm thankful for. And this is the third November in a row where I'm like, yep, diabetes, top of the list, because it gave me the framework to manage my life and understand my choices and to hold myself accountable every single day, multiple times per day. I could not get away from the choices that I had available to me. And I had to hold myself accountable knowing that if I made different choices, or if I just succumbed to like, whatever I used to do in the past to get through stuff, then I was at, what I wasn't changing, I was choosing. And that was unacceptable to me. Like I would never choose to do anything that would put my health in harm's way. Now that I had this framework with which to understand that. And thank you for all the awareness and education you've done, you know, since you've been diagnosed with diabetes, all the awareness and education you've done about diabetes, because admittedly, I've heard of diabetes. I know there's multiple types. That was the extent. And maybe that's my own ignorance and I should, you know, care more and do more educate or do more research um, just in life. But I mean, my aunt has diabetes and I mean, I don't necessarily, I'm not super close with her, I would say. And so you know, I feel like I've learned more through your story about diabetes and you've done a great job putting it into layman's terms. I've learned more from there than I have from probably just simply, you know, talking to my aunt about, about, and I, I, I don't even actually know which type she has, which sounds terrible, but um, thank you yeah. for spreading that awareness and that education. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's the thing is like, I, I think <laughs> it's funny cause I, I credit skydiving for, and learning how to think of things in a positive light first as how I could manage my diabetes because there is such shame and such stigma and you've seen the memes and you've heard the jokes and like when you say somebody has type 2 diabetes and real quickly the difference between type 1 and type 2 type 1 is autoimmune type 2 is largely influenced by genetics diet and exercise um, or the lack thereof in all those areas so um, for me though, I saw this as an opportunity rather than a burden for the same reason that I was like, Oh, this is diabetes, not cancer. I went with that one step further and I was like, okay, this disease is an opportunity to turn my life around rather than a diagnosis. That's a death sentence, because if left untreated, it will be a death sentence. Like if you have type two diabetes, you're also susceptible to stroke, heart disease, kidney failure, any of the things that come as a spur of the wheel off any of those side effects. Like it just compounds everything that could be happening in your body. Uh, the complications from diabetes are horrendous and awful. And I knew that I didn't want that. So it was a shift to be like, okay, this is an opportunity to turn things around because we caught it early. I'm young. I'm still mobile. Um, and I have at the time, I had all of the resources available to me to manage it because I was working a great job with a six figure salary. I had platinum health benefits through my employer. My boss was awesome and did not question when I needed to take time off to manage my health. And I had unlimited vacation. So I could go manage my health when I needed to, like going to doctor's appointments and stuff like that was not an issue. If any of those things had been different, I might not be in the same position that I'm in today. In fact, I can tell you that I definitely would not have been because if I didn't have health insurance, it wouldn't have been diagnosed and I'd still be living with it. If I didn't have access to whole fresh foods, and I'm not saying like going to whole foods, I'm saying like an apple, because if I lived in a food desert, good luck managing diabetes. If all you're eating is processed food, you're not getting the nutritional requirements that you need to manage this disease effectively. If I 
didn't have a six figure salary and I wasn't working one single job. Like if I was a single mom working two or three jobs to keep food on the table, I wouldn't have had time to exercise. Like there's so many things economically, socially, politically that feed into this disease that it just blows my mind that that's not the conversation we're having around diabetes because this disease is one of the most political diseases I think that there is because if any of the factors that I already listed weren't true, I would not have been able to manage this as efficiently and as aggressively as I was able to do so. You know, I'm so happy we've spoken today because like I said, strength, resiliency, you are you are so strong. And I think we've learned so many different tools or people, ways that help you find that strength. Um, diabetes, no exception. I want to ask you though, this struck me. I was, you know, admittedly doing plenty of research um, and, and you have so many good, uh, like I said, Facebook blog, you've shared your story and you continue to, to this day. And I love it. There was a blog post you wrote last year and in the middle of it, kind of as an afterthought or maybe not an afterthought, but you said, my improv class saved my damn life. <laughs> and that's a whole different post in itself. And I want to ask you, what would that whole different post say? Oh, man. Well, especially now. So when I wrote that, man, I didn't even know the extent to which that was true. So when I wrote it, um, it literally saved my life in that when I got off the trail the second time, um, for the following 11 days, I was just in a state of, uh, I don't want to say despair, um, but I had just connected the dots between the assault and how the unresolved trauma from the assault manifested in my body as physical and mental disease, type two diabetes, panic attacks. Um, I had just connected those dots. That was like the Pandora's box key of healing. Like that wasn't the answer to all my problems, but it did give me the understanding. And now I had a framework from which I could evaluate my trauma, which was this visual metaphor of unpacking this backpack that I've been walking around with. Um, so with the improv, so when I got off the trail, like that, that was the beginning of my healing process. It was a huge healing in and of itself, but it was the beginning of my healing process. And so I had been taking improv classes leading up to that hike. And um, when I got back from the trail, the 11 days that followed were some of the like toughest days of my life because I didn't really know how to reintegrate myself into this society as it were. Because after you walk for however many days with everything you actually need to survive on your back, it kind of shifts your perspective. Like when I got home from that hike, we didn't have a big house by any stretch. It was less than a thousand square feet, but I got home from that hike and I was like, this house is too big and we have way too much stuff. I want to sell it all and move into a van. <laughs> like I just walked with everything I actually need to provide for myself and survive in this world with everything I've got on my back. Like I don't need this couch. I don't need my Vitamix. I don't need my KitchenAid mixer. I don't need my stand-up desk. Like I don't need all these things that I bought that I thought made me an adult and like had me have everything together. So when I say that my improv class saved my life, it literally saved my life because the, the first class that I did um, after I got back, which was, it was a, we had a show on June 17th, 2018. And I got back and I was in such a funk. And one of my teammates, so I used to work at Disney World um, in between my sophomore and junior year of college. We moved to Florida and I took a year off so I could get in-state tuition. I used to work at Disney World as a costume character in parades and shows. And so I had shared this with one of my classmates and I was like, okay, guys, 
I'm new to performing on stage. So if at any point you see me out there and I freeze, just pretend like you're taking your character head off and pretend we're in a break room. And like, that will, like, I'll know that I'm okay, everything's safe. And I can just launch into like some kind of character that I've already played in my real life. So I was on stage, I froze, I was freaking out. And my teammate, Dan, he comes out on the stage with me to start a scene and he just takes off his character head and he offers me a lemonade. And I was like, oh my God, you like, because in that moment I felt like I was dying. Like I thought I was actually going to melt into the stage and just completely lose my shit. And he like metaphorically in that moment, like brought me out of my own little spiral that was happening inside my brain and brought me back into the present moment. And now I could play. And I like, cause in improv, there's no rules. The only rule is that you never say no to your partner. You always say yes. And so it saved my life in that respect. Like I was spiraling on stage about to have a panic attack and a meltdown. And my teammate came in and came in with the cue that I was like, if I'm ever flailing help, he remembered that brought it to that scene. But also um, improv saved my life in that, that yes. And concept for anybody that's listening, that's not familiar. Um, if I, if Tim and I are on stage and I'm like, hi, Tim, I love oranges. And I like hand you an imaginary orange. You don't say you're silly. That's a strawberry. You say, oh my gosh, this is the best orange I've ever seen in my life. And we build the scene from there. We say yes to what our partner offers us. And then we say, and, and we build on it. So that's how Kiking My Feelings came to be as it is today. Um, It started as a hashtag after I realized that I was hiking my feelings instead of eating and drinking my feelings after I got diagnosed with diabetes. And then after the trail the second time, I was like, okay, I had just quit two jobs. I was unemployed. We had no savings whatsoever to speak of. And I was just like, okay, I just got done with this hike. I know I've been hiking my feelings. What else could this be? And then the opportunity to do some talks with REI came up and I was like, okay, let's call it a speaking tour. I want to do a speaking tour around the country. What else do I want to do? Okay, so yes to the speaking tour and I want to write a book. And I was like, okay, cool. That sounds great. So uh, what else do I want to do with my life? Like, what are all the creative things I've ever wanted to do ever that I turned off when my dad told me I was a bad liar? Well, I want to make a movie someday. I want to make a film about this journey, whether that's a documentary or somebody picks up my book and turns it into a screenplay. I don't know, but I want it to be a speaking tour. I want it to be a book. And yes, and I want it to be a a film of some sort, something that people can visually consume. And so the concepts from improv like snapped me out of what could have been a horrible discovery. Like if I had not had the training with skydiving to be able to think positively first, and if I didn't identify that I was hiking my feelings instead of eating and drinking my feelings, and if I didn't have improv to teach me, yes, and so positive first and build on that, I might have after that hike gone into like the biggest shame spiral of my life because discovering that your chronic illness was in part due to the coping mechanisms that you developed in the absence of getting support after a sexual assault, like that could have been a very painful and shameful discovery for me. Like I could have been like, well, I brought all of this upon myself. If I didn't go get raped, then I wouldn't have diabetes. Like it could have gone that way. But because of skydiving, because of improv, because of my ability to think and reframe everything to be a silver lining first before moving into the evaluation part of it, that's what saved my life. So it saved me from being a, uh, having a panic attack on stage. It saved me from spiraling into like, 
I am worthless and no wonder I'm unemployed and turned this very intensely personal, vulnerable, not uncommon story into something that I could like actually work with and hopefully make the world a better place with. Because when I got off the trail, when I quit all the, like I got diagnosed with diabetes, I quit my agency job in that transition. I realized like everything that I've ever done professionally that I thought was a bragging point on my resume was actually teaching people how to numb or be sick. And that in fact, I was a byproduct of the work I was doing. So when I worked in the wine industry, I wanted you to be drinking wine all the time. That's not healthy. When I was working with NBC, I wanted you to sit on your butt, watch our programming and binge watch four seasons of whatever show. That's not healthy. So like I realized that all these things weren't good. They're not making the world a better place, but I'm good at it. So I was like, can I turn these skills around and make the world a better place? Because the clients I'm working with and the teams that I'm working with, like we're generating a shit ton of money for these brands. I'm really good at what I do, but I'm not making the world a better place. So improv, skydiving, this trip, this trail, all of these things, like eventually like bubbled up to the surface and it feels like it was a freaking volcano with hiking my feelings and everything that I wanted to do afterwards. I can't help but think, I mean, you embody that core concept of improv. Yes. And, and I I can't help but think that like, maybe that is one of the, the core principles that has brought you to where you are today, your willingness to no matter what life throws at you, just say yes. And, and then roll with it. Yeah. Cause you can't take anything at face value, right? Like, first of all, especially if you're in any kind of state of unresolved trauma, whether that's sexual assault or you've been through a divorce or you've lost, like somebody's died, you've been in a car accident, you've been in a gun violence situation, like all of these things that are traumatic. Like if at any point with any one of those things, I could have been like, that's it. I'm done. Can't deal. But to just say it and see it like be like, yes, this is happening. Or yes, this just happened. What else? Like, don't just take it at face value. Because if we've been through all these things, we're responding from this place of fight or flight. If we haven't gotten help, our vision is skewed, like literal vision and metaphorical vision. Like, if you can't see the forest through the trees, how can you trust that you know how to care for yourself? How can you trust, you know, how to come at these situations objectively, like you don't. So I, in the absence of receiving professional help, like the, the concept of yes, and absolutely gave me something. It was one tool in a toolbox that was the one that I pulled out that made sense because I couldn't, I couldn't like, it's unfortunate that so many people face these things and they don't see another way out. And I'm lucky that my air quotes downward spiral was like, my grades suffered. I drank a lot and I ate ice cream for breakfast. Like there's people that turn to like opiates and heroin and really hard substances, or they take their own life or they never get help. And they just walk around through the world, bitter and angry and throwing their shit at everybody else. Like the second that we realize that we can take care of ourselves and turn inward for everything we need. Cause I legit believe that we all have every tool we ever need ever, but we've evolved as a society to where we're all selling solutions for somebody's problem that we just, we give away our power to heal ourselves and to hear ourselves before like our, the default is to look to someone else before you look at yourself. So I would say that yes, and was absolutely a framework that that saved my life and one that I'm incredibly, incredibly thankful for. So if you haven't taken an improv class, at least go do one because it's fun. 
It will remember, it will teach you how to play and it will help you remember what it's like to be a kid because in improv, there's no rules. Everything is right, <laughs> which for people who have been like trying to perform a role of the person who has it all together for a long time, it's really nice to be a mess on an improv stage because everything's okay there. <laughs> it was essentially my form of group therapy. Like we all needed that space and we took extreme, extreme good care of it and also extreme advantage of the situation because we could just do and say whatever we wanted and there were no repercussions as long as it was yes and after and in between. I'm such a huge fan of improv uh, and, you know, being here in Chicago, we have so much of it available yes, to us. Yes, you do. Um, You're like in the mecca of like <laughs> reliable, wonderful improv situations. So, yeah. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I really, I mean, I'm, I'm not like putting on a show here. I have a page of notes. I love this. <laughs> yeah, I've learned so much. This really, honestly, probably this whole thing is probably just an excuse for me to learn from people like you. I love um, it. That's why everybody, but that's why we do this, right? Because that's really all there is to it is like just get out there and ask questions and learn from people. Because like the second we start talking about this stuff is the second we get more understanding. Because that was the biggest thing for me is like I didn't know a lot of what happened to me was problematic until I heard other people sharing their stories of the similar things that they experienced and articulating why it was. Like being able to have the language to understand what has happened to us outside of our own beliefs and understanding of what we've been through is the, is the way to heal. I think like, that's why I go out and I share the story as much as I can is it's giving people language and understanding and context for like, in my case, since I speak primarily about sexual assault, it's like a lot of people have that one thing that happened and they're like, Oh, was that assault or not? Cause we were really good at conditioning ourselves to believe that it wasn't. Um, and that's why I was quiet for so long because I, I figured if it wasn't in an alley with a gun to my head, um, then I definitely was not assaulted. So um, being able to talk to people about this stuff and give them the language to help them process their own stuff, like that's that's ultimately, I think, how we change the world. It's like do the work on yourself and then your community is positively impacted because you can't really show up as your true authentic self unless you're here and you're you're doing the work and then you show up in your community as a whole healthy happy person and everybody wants to know what you what you're drinking and then you tell them i'm, I'm drinking self-love you know and i'm and i'm drinking and i'm drinking the hard like i'm drinking the hard stuff and the hard stuff is like doing this work and like looking at ourselves um but then like once people see that they they're inspired to do the same for themselves and i think that's the ripple effect that we should be talking about is like turn inward do the work for yourself and then every interaction you have from a happy healthy place as your whole authentic self that impacts the world in ways way bigger than any of the work we get paid to do anything else. Like just our interaction every day with humans, if we're kind versus nice, which nice is, I believe, a way to avoid confrontation. Um, if we're kind, kind is like speaking the truth, your truth and the truth um, and not not sugarcoating it because sugarcoating it leads to misunderstandings and is a way to avoid confrontation. And that that doesn't serve anybody at the end of the day. And it's, you know, you brought up about um, that uh, that notion of if I see someone else or hear someone else that has been through it, I've been through, that is so huge to me. Like, it's fascinating how just simply understanding and just literally seeing or hearing, hey, they've been through what I've been through. Oh my gosh, I'm not crazy. I'm not weird. I'm, I'm human. <laughs> and there's another human that I can now, maybe I can talk to them, but I can at least understand that they, they've been through that. But like you said, they couldn't have shared their story if they hadn't looked inward and helped themselves. So it's kind of this like cycle of like, 
if I can look inward and define me and then share that, then I'm going to help someone else who's going to do the same. And it's like this never ending cycle of just us all helping each other. Yeah, I think that's how we saved the world. And that's why I wrote the book. Because like, I can go and I can tell the story on tour. And it's fun. It's an entertaining talk to attend. And it makes people feel things. Some people cry, some people laugh, some people do all of the above. But ultimately, like sitting down with a book with everything, like it's, it's the version, the book is the version of my talk that includes all of the stuff that I can't fit into an hour long presentation. So it's more stories, there's more funny stuff, it's not all heavy and sad. But that's ultimately like, that was the motivation behind the book was like, I'm just going to tell my story, unapologetically, this is what it is, this is who I am, reclaim these parts of myself that I've been so scared to claim, and hope that it impacts someone positively so they can go do the same for themselves and then impact their community in that way. Like that's, the, that is the driving force behind why I share my story as openly as I do. Cause that is the only reason that I've been able to heal. And the way I've been able to heal is because other people have done that for themselves and I was witness to it. And thank you for doing that. Like not just the diabetes, I definitely thank you for the diabetes education, but all of the sharing you're doing, you know, despite what others might think, I can tell you from my point of view, you are making a difference. You've made a difference for me. I know you're making a difference for others. Um, and it's not easy to go out there and be vulnerable like that and share your story. Um, as I'm sure you know, but just so everyone knows, I mean, yeah. oh my gosh, it's not easy. Um, so thank you. You are making a difference. And I, I just want you to know that from my point of view, you are making an impact and I hope you continue to do it. Thank you so much. I uh, I can't not do it. So I'll take you up on that. I'll, I will continue until somebody tells me that I can't and that somebody's like my maker who brings me to wherever I go after this. Like if it's my spaceship with Kesha and she's like, hey, you're done here. Let's go to the <laughs> other planets. I'll be like, all right, sweet. Let's take a ride. But ultimately, like this is I've never felt like in my in my career or personal life or anything like I've never felt so sure of something or so committed to something other than my marriage. Like I know I'm going to spend the rest of my life with Barry Williams and I know I'm going to spend the rest of my life showing the world who Sydney Williams is. And hopefully that helps someone, you know, I, I have a page of notes here, Sydney, that I've taken during our conversation, which um, to me suggests that I've learned a lot, which I hope <laughs> that others listening have learned a lot. I cannot thank you enough for taking this time today. I know you're on the road with your speaking tour for hiking my feelings. But thank you so much um, for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a blast. Thanks for listening to this episode of We're Only Human. Please go ahead and give us a review or rate us with some stars. And maybe tell a friend about the podcast. Thanks.